Good morning. So good to see you all. I'm Reverend Mari Caballero, and I am uh, this church's assistant minister, and I'm very glad to be up here again. I'm here about once a month in this role, in this spot. Usually I'm in the back helping out with the kids, and so it's great every time I'm right here. This is a church of open minds and loving hearts and listening ears and helping hands. And if you're here for the first time, if you're here for the 1,050th time, we're glad to have you. We're glad to see you, and we hope you come back. All right. I would like to invite all of you to greet the divine spark in one another. If you'll look in your order of service, you can join me in the words by which we light our chalice this morning. In the light of truth, in the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is from Erica Hewitt. As we enter into worship, Put away the pressures of the world that ask us to perform, to take up masks, to put on brave fronts. Silence the voices that ask you to be perfect. This is a community of compassion and welcoming. You do not have to do anything to earn the love contained within these walls. You do not have to be braver, smarter, stronger, better than you are in this moment to belong with us here. You only have to bring the gift of your body, no matter how able, your seeking mind, no matter how busy, your animal heart, no matter how broken. Bring all that you are and all that you have to this hour together. Let us worship Each week we come together from so many different backgrounds and experiences and beliefs, theologies, persuasions, and some wonder, well, what do you do when you gather together? What, what are you for? What's the purpose? And, well, there's a long explanation and there's a short one. And the short one we say each week, and it's written on the wall, We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading is by Barbara Merritt. Now, I'm not one for affirmations. Saying something doesn't make it so. But recently, a dear friend of mine read to me some affecting lines from an unknown author. They went something like this. It's time somebody told you that you are lovely, good, and real, that your beauty can make hearts stand still. It's time somebody told you how much they love and need you, how much your spirit helped set them free, how your eyes shine full of light. It's time somebody told you. As these words were read, I found a complex internal process going on within me. I was touched, unnerved, 
and a little sad that I hadn't heard these words as a child. But mostly I became conscious of enormous resistance. Something in me was not ready to let these words in. It could be that I wasn't quite ready to hear such positive feedback. Maybe it wasn't quite yet the right time to receive love and affection. But apparently at least one friend thought that now was a good time to attend to what is essential and life-giving. Often we are too busy, too distracted to listen to what our loved ones have to tell us. They offer all kinds of radical and startling opinions about our place in the divine scheme of things. Messages that I can almost hear include, It's time someone told you that with all your flaws and weaknesses, you are an extraordinary person, well worth knowing. No one, especially not God or the people who love you, expects you to live without making mistakes or stumbling occasionally. It's time that you looked at your own life with more kindness, gentleness, and mercy. It's time someone told you that you are not on this earth to impress anyone, to dazzle us with your success to conquer all obstacles with your competence or to offer one brilliant solution after another. We are happy you are here with the rest of us struggling souls. We are all striving to be as faithful as we can to be the truth that we understand. No more is required. It's time someone told you that the work you do to increase your capacity to love and to pay attention is more important than any other activity. As you advance closer to what is ultimately true and life-giving, you bless others. It's time somebody told you how absolutely beautiful your laughter is. You bring joy into the world. Just possibly, messages of love and acceptance have always been circulating in our midst. The hard part is not seeking out these positive and creative affirmations that remind us that we are loved. The hard part is taking in that love. It's time somebody told us all that we are valued and infinitely worthwhile. And it's time that we believe it. We all come in this room each week carrying just so much that is our lives, so much that is the lives of those we care about, those we hold in our hearts. Some of it's joyful. Some of it's just tragic. And we come in feeling so alone most of the time. It's human. We think we're the only ones who care. And yet we're in this together. And so we have this ritual in which all of you are invited, who feel so moved, to light a candle along our wall with this thought in your mind, that which you've 
carried in with you, whether it's joyous or it's grievous, and you light that candle and the flame will rise and the smoke will become the very air that we all breathe together so that you don't have to celebrate or mourn alone. At the beginning of last week, my fiancé and I dutifully drove directly from work to the gym, changed into stretchy fabrics, and climbed the stairs to the yoga studio. The last time I'd been in that room, it was hard to find a spot for my mat. But this time we had the run of the place, and we could stretch out as much as we wanted to. The instructor looked around the room and declared, well, I guess the resolutions are over. (laughs) I must admit to a bit of self-important satisfaction at that moment. I am a recovering overachiever who likes to think of herself as a good student. But I'm not sure if it was necessarily any amount of steady devotion to a champagne-driven December 31st promise to myself that had brought me to the gym after a long day and an even longer week. It was more likely the thought of wedding day photos that are a mere nine months away that has kept me in my sneakers this far into January. It's not so much that I'm a diligent student as I'd like to think. It just turns out that I'm vain. And now I've had my moment of raw honesty, so I'd like to ask those of you who made some sort of New Year's resolutions to raise your hands. Don't worry, I won't be asking if you've stuck to them. I nearly always make New Year's resolutions, even if I don't tell anyone. And according to a study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology, I'm in good company with 50% of Americans also claiming to make these nearly unattainable goals. The most popular are exercise, weight loss, smoking cessation, better money management, and debt reduction. Mainly just easy stuff like that. But unattainable, you ask? Yes, if the Wall Street Journal is to be believed. 88% of those who make such resolutions will fail. Looking back on my many years of resolution setting, I would guess that my failure percentage is probably higher than 88. And wanting to have the satisfaction of knowing that I've truly followed through on a promise to myself and having wanted to not only succeed but exceed in my goal... I always end up, you you understand, I always (laughs) end up feeling as if I'm somehow deficient. Don't worry, by now I'm great at talking myself off of that ledge. But I wanted to say this because I think that this is a fairly common human experience. Neurologists are saying that there is science behind our inability to follow through on resolutions. The part of our brain that handles willpower is our prefrontal cortex, which sits right behind our forehead. And according to Jonah Lehrer, neuroscientist and author of 
how we decide, and Proust was a neuroscientist. This area of the brain has come far since our knuckle-dragging days, but it probably isn't, it probably hasn't expanded enough during evolution to meet the challenges that we face in this 21st century and handle the self-judgment and pressure that goes along with creating New Year's resolutions. We know through science that this prefrontal cortex is already working quite hard at any given moment on any given day and is responsible for keeping us focused, handling short-term memory, and solving abstract problems. Lehrer says, asking it to lose weight, one of the most common New Year's resolutions, is often asking it to do one thing too many. As they say, the spirit is strong, but the flesh is weak. Most of us, myself included, are so mired in self-judgment that we hear such things and think, excuses, excuses. So the part of the brain that controls willpower has its hands full with other tasks. Somebody call the wambulance. Wah, 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 wah. Okay, maybe that's just me. Maybe I binge watch Modern Family a little too much while snacking on sugary foods instead of eating fruit salad as a reward after a hard workout at the gym. Or it's also possible that I'm being hard on myself and should listen to the science and reframe the whole experience. Again, I reckon I'm not alone here. These thoughts sound silly and irrational when spoken aloud, but I would venture to guess that most of our internal dialogue would if we were to say it out loud. Lehrer acknowledges that there's something unsettling about this scientific model of willpower. Most of us assume that self-control is largely a character issue, and that if we would just follow through on our New Year's resolutions, we could do that with just a little bit more discipline. But research suggests that willpower itself is inherently limited and that our January promises fail in large part because the brain wasn't built for success. That last sentence blew my mind. The brain isn't built for success? And what are we all doing? This makes me want to grow out a beard and never wear shoes again. Never tie the laces of those when I do. Psychology professor Peter Herman echoes this. He and his colleagues have identified what they call the false hope syndrome, cheerful name, which means their resolution is significantly unrealistic and out of alignment with their internal view of themselves. They say this principle reflects that of making positive affirmations. When you make positive affirmations about yourself that you don't really believe, the positive affirmations not only don't work, but they can be damaging to your self-esteem. So the lesson is, we should significantly lower our expectations of ourselves so that we aren't sad when we fail to achieve goals. I'm sure that 
to a room full of Unitarian Universalists who are typically high-achieving goal-setters, this sounds like the sort of attitudes that other countries laugh about when they caricature Americans as emotionally fragile, ego-centered culture that, in which we insist on celebrating mediocrity. The inventors of the everyone gets an award for simply participating blue ribbon. Thankfully, though, the researchers didn't stop there. They haven't all tuned in, turned on, and dropped out. Instead, many have saved the world, or at least this congregation, from such a fate as well. Lehrer insists that the prefrontal cortex can be strengthened much like a muscle. All right, I'll add that to my growing list of problem areas to tone up. Not necessarily. He suggests that if we approach goals by breaking them down into bite-sized, attainable pieces instead of creating huge, sweeping, abstract goals, we have a better chance at success as practicing mental discipline in one area, such as posture, can also make it easier to resist Christmas cookies. When our willpower brain muscle is stronger, we become more skillful at exercising willpower. We create brand new neural pathways. An editorial recently in Psychology Today offers practical tips much along the lines of what you'd expect to see in a Today Show segment. They say, one, focus on one resolution rather than several. Two, set realistic, specific goals. Losing weight is not a specific goal. Losing 10 pounds in 90 days is. Don't wait till New Year's Eve to make your New Year's resolutions. Make it a year-long process every day. Yeah. Take small steps. Many people quit because the goal is too big or requires too big a step all at once. Five, have an accountability buddy, someone close to you that you have to report to. Six, celebrate your success between milestones. Don't wait for the goal to be completed. Seven, focus your thinking on new behaviors and thought patterns. You have to create new neural pathways in your brain to change habits. Eight, focus on the present. What's the one thing you can do today, right now, towards your goal? Nine, be mindful. Become physically, emotionally, and mentally aware of your inner state as each external event happens, moment by moment, rather than living in the past or the future. And finally, they say, don't take yourself so seriously. Have fun and laugh at yourself when you slip, but don't let the slip hold you back from working at your goal. Oh, science is great. And learning about how our brains work against us, setting us up for New Year's resolution and goal setting in general, failure, does help me to forgive myself to a degree. But we're more than just our intellectual understandings of our physiology. We're spiritual beings that, underneath the vanity and the internalized societal pressures, have deep unmet spiritual needs buried underneath each one of our New Year's resolutions. 
or underneath each one of our reasons for not setting them in the first place. There's stories there. Underneath a goal of weight loss is usually the need to be loved and accepted just as we are. Underneath the goal of debt reduction may be the spiritual need to demonstrate our love for others as we would desire to provide for our families and our children's future. And underneath the goal of quitting damaging habits such as smoking may be the human spiritual need of reconciliation as we hope to make right years of damage done. One of the most difficult lessons for me to learn while a student chaplain in a hospital setting, and one I believe I'll continue to have to learn and relearn throughout my life, is the notion that whatever the situation, know that you are enough. I rebelled with every fiber of my being against this. And yet my professors would say, it's true. No matter how inadequate you might feel, no matter how much you believe that your presence in a situation is of little consequence, you are always enough. The authentic you that you bring is enough. It's enough because it's all that you can possibly be and do. I still wonder about the truth in this. Yet I know that most of what that heavily accented six-foot-something German Yoda, my supervisor, the Reverend Birte Boyk, said, contained wisdom that I will spend the rest of my life trying to unpack. It certainly didn't feel like I was enough when I stood at the bedside of a family whose one-year-old baby girl had just died in their arms after several months' hospitalization. And there I was, unable to speak the indigenous language of their tribe, whose culture and land they had left behind, left in Mexico, to seek a better life in the United States. The notion of loving kindness, of extending love to oneself and others by way of practicing kindness, and empathy is one that's found in many religious traditions. In the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew word hesed appears in Psalm 47, which can be translated as, Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. In Christianity, we are taught the notion of agape. <clears throat> the highest form of love, the kind of love that God can express for creation by ultimate sacrifice, and the kind of love we can express for one another when committed to caring about the well-being of others. But we're perhaps most familiar with the notion of loving kindness as it comes to us from westernized Buddhism. Meg leads us most weeks in that much-beloved meta-meditation, of loving-kindness, in which we extend kindness first to ourselves, and then to someone we love, and then to someone for whom we hold or against whom we hold a resentment. I was not aware until recently that meta is the poly word for loving-kindness, 
and that its practice comes to us from the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. In its traditional form, the meditation ends with the extension of loving-kindness, lastly toward all sentient beings. When Meg leads this, she often says that extending loving-kindness towards someone for whom we hold a resentment is typically the most difficult spiritual practice of the three. And yes, forgiveness of others is hard stuff. But there are some days in which extending loving kindness toward myself is the most difficult of those three. It's that tricky self-forgiving thing again. It's that wall that we hit when we believe that we are not enough. My friend, Natalie Briscoe, recently modeled this so well for me with her hilarious and poignant online post about self-forgiveness and the extension of loving-kindness to oneself. A few days ago, she said, Today, while I was eating lunch, and Ian, her toddler, was screaming in my face, throwing food, grabbing my plate, pulling my hair with ketchup hands, trying to climb me like a tree, and pooping in his pants. I recalled a story about two Buddhist monks who were observing a businessman eating and reading the paper at the same time. The first monk asked, Which is he doing? Reading the paper or eating? The second monk said, He is doing neither of them well. And then I thought that if this story were true, I would punch those monks in the face with my ketchupy poopy hands and say, I can do a lot of things well, thank you. I'm a mom. New Year's resolutions are all about becoming more like the kind of person we want to be, what we admire about ourselves and in others. And I'm not sure that, that we should take the free pass that science may seem to hand us in and just never set such goals. After all, what's the point of life besides walking humbly on this journey toward living, a tiny step each day, more fully into our shared humanity, and learning from our stumbles and the obstacles we encounter along the way? What I'm learning is that instead of a boot camp type drill sergeant approach, meeting my goals, I, must, I, I might just try a loving-kindness approach. Maybe extending loving-kindness to ourselves, the thought that I am enough, should top our resolution list each year. Barbara Merritt suggests in this morning's reading that it's time someone told us that we are valued and infinitely worthwhile. Maybe we are that someone. Yikes. And I'm stretching into a pose. I'm convinced I will spend the remainder of my life, my uncomfortable life in. And I look up across the room at a woman with a serene countenance who looks as if she naturally just falls into this pose when she sits down to write a book. 
to read a book. And I think, this is absolutely nuts. What am I thinking? The yoga instructor walks past me and says, remember to breathe. Perfecto. And I realize, I am enough. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.